0: This is available as a podcast and a webinar. All right, good afternoon and welcome to.
1: Uh, The Evidence Refresher for Limited Jurisdiction Courts, our 2023 edition. I think this edition is better than ever before, so uh, I'm real excited uh, for this afternoon. We have a couple of terrific presenters. Uh, Judge Laney McDonald from the town of Moranis. She is the town magistrate there. Uh, Most of you do know Gerald Williams from North Valley uh, Justice, uh, uh, Justice Court. He does present for us frequently. Uh, Judge Morana, uh, excuse me, Judge McDonald uh, was previously a prosecutor in Morana, and uh, she was appointed as the town magistrate in 2015. She is uh, a rising star. Uh, she does teach frequently, in fact, she's going to be teaching evidence at the Judicial yep. Conference. So it is wonderful to have her presenting for us today. Uh, And Judge Williams, again, just teaches for us tremendously. He is from uh, originally from the state of Oklahoma. We won't be talking about the uh, College World Series any further. Uh, If you are joining us, please mute yourself unless you're actively asking a question. And I will turn it over to Judges McDonald and Williams.
2: All um, good afternoon, everyone. We are going to start out just with a brief overview of of what evidence is and then jump into um, some specific rules that are heavily utilized in the limited jurisdiction courts. Um, We would love to answer any questions that you have. um, And we'll try to provide some real world examples and examples from case law as well. So we're looking forward to it. Anything to add Judge Williams?
3: Um, thanks uh, for being here. And in the the materials, there's a, a, the PowerPoint presentation is very, very good. And at the end of it, there's also a fairly detailed outline um, that Charles sent out earlier. So in theory, you shouldn't have to take a lot of notes today unless you want to, you can just listen, and then feel free to interrupt us with any questions.
2: Definitely um all right so what is evidence um evidence is obviously the the thing that we are considering and making our our factual findings in bench trials uh evidence is the thing that we are kind of gatekeeping for our jurors in jury trials so it's really the bulk of of what we're working with as judges. So evidence can be a document or another material that is received in court considered by the fact finder. So that'll be you if it's a bench trial or the jurors in a jury trial and it's presented to prove or disprove a fact of consequence. So um, that kind of gets down to the the meat and potatoes of evidence is we want relevant evidence coming in. So we want it to prove or disprove uh, a fact of consequence. A lot of the evidence that we are going to see is is fact, evidence, personal observations, things that people actually had the opportunity to see, hear, uh, smell, any of those things that, that you use your senses to do, um, but we do also have opinion evidence that comes in, and the big thing with opinion evidence is that it has to be helpful, so um, lay people opinions can come in if they are based on personal observations Um, so they have to actually have observed the thing that they are having an opinion about um, and that they are helpful to the fact finder and then expert witness um, expert witness evidence we're going to talk a little bit more about this towards the end of the presentation um, because the expert being qualified is, is a big part of whether they're opinion comes in and we're going to talk about Daubert towards the end of the presentation so their opinions obviously have to be helpful to the fact finder and the expert does have to be qualified documentary evidence um, you're you're going to require foundation and something uh, either a stipulation or testimony that explains how that document um is relevant and how it relates to the facts of the case with documents uh, typically they are out of court statements Um, so you have potential hearsay issues that uh, you'll have to address with documentary evidence and we will talk a little bit about that as we go on Real evidence. Um, I don't know about all of you, but we don't get a whole lot of real evidence uh, in my court. Uh, Mostly we get photos of things um, or people talking about evidence, but once in a while you will get those real physical objects that come into court. Back when I was a prosecutor, they used to bring in the drug paraphernalia. They don't do that so much anymore. Oftentimes we're getting photographs and and things like that, at least here in Marana um and then demonstrative evidence are things that were created solely for trial so if the officer gets up and draws a diagram on the board um or someone brings in some sort of summary or chart that would be demonstrative evidence yeah charles
1: well i i was waiting for uh, judge williams to to uh say this but uh, you, you know you, you don't do eviction so you don't have people bringing bed bugs into your oh. court we, we've had uh, people bring in jars of bed bugs. So,
2: <laughs> well, I don't envy you there. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, now hopefully they couldn't get that through court security, but um, I guess you never know. I've had people uh, in auto repair cases bring in engine parts and and lay them down in front of me, and I'm like, this doesn't help me. Um, right. I, I don't know if this is a if this is a good part, or a bad part, or how it. How it fits in the engine, but you, you're right. If, if, if someone's handing us a firearm, uh, they probably should not be in a limited jurisdiction court case.
2: But it's, it's Yes, possible. that is definitely typically the case. I mean, once in a while, perhaps. Um, but good to know that engine parts are not helpful to the fact finder in Judge Williams's courtroom. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Um so there are there's direct and circumstantial evidence and the big thing to understand here is that circumstantial evidence is given the same weight as direct evidence in Arizona we actually have a jury instruction on that Um, So you need to understand what circumstantial evidence is and that it's not less um, persuasive because it is circumstantial. So circumstantial evidence is is something that gives rise to an inference that an event occurred or a fact exists. And the easy example is snow or rain, rain probably more appropriate here in Arizona, but there was no snow when I went to bed. There's snow on the ground in the morning, so it must have snowed overnight. That would be circumstantial. The snow in the morning would be circumstantial evidence that it had snowed overnight. So something to to kind of try to wrap your head around and, and know that that is um, admissible and um, well-considered evidence here in Arizona.
3: I just want to echo that. In almost every TV police show or crime scene movie or, or whatever there's some well you know the evidence against him is only circumstantial you know well, circumstantial evidence is is really really good evidence sometimes a a fingerprint is circumstantial evidence I, I would rather have a fingerprint if I was trying to prove a case than than eyewitness testimony in, in a lot of situations so uh, circumstantial evidence is I, I know it has this sort of negative common, connotation in popular culture. But it's really, and uh, sometimes better uh, than what we label as direct evidence. The other thing on the the snow instruction in uh, in military courts, they they use uh, that as a a jury instruction on on direct and circumstantial evidence. They use a if it if you wake up in the morning and the sidewalk is wet, you can conclude that it rains overnight, which in Arizona is actually kind of a horrible jury instruction. If you wake up and the sidewalk is wet, you can conclude that the sprinkler system came on uh, overnight. So there's 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 holes in everything. But often circumstantial evidence is, is a lot better than direct evidence.
2: Judge Williams makes a, a really good point there with eyewitness identification. That's not something that we delve into in detail here. Um, but as judges, certainly something to take a look at um, because it is inherently really unreliable. Um, eyewitness identification is one of the least reliable types of evidence. So I, I too would would much prefer to have a fingerprint than, than an eyewitness identification, especially one that was done poorly. So uh, that's a really good point. So our role as judges is to admit only evidence that is relevant and reliable and obviously therefore to exclude evidence that is unreliable or irrelevant Um, there are lots of exceptions uh, to these concepts but in order to decide whether evidence is admissible we have to look at the relevance we have to make sure that there is foundation if that applies Uh, based on the evidence being presented and then also consider all the special rules on opinions, hearsay, privilege, character. So these evidentiary decisions that we're making, the decisions that we make on the admissibility of evidence are, are complicated decisions. It's, you know, yeah, you I, I had a, a judge that I practiced in front of when I was a prosecutor who said, well, you got a 5050 chance, <laughs> which is true. Um, you're, you're gonna either admit it or not admit it. And you know, perhaps you do have a 5050 chance. But there are a lot of factors that go into the analysis there. So, because of all those factors that we are considering, I I think the three step process is is important. Um, It's definitely something that I use. So you have your objection or motion to strike um, and then a response and um, sometimes i'll even let the other side respond to the response the proponent of the evidence because what that's doing it's building your record which is good your record is your friend and it is also giving you time to think about the issues or find the rule in your rule book So that you can take a look at it and make sure that you are making the right decision um, to the best of your ability. So giving the parties the opportunity to object, respond, perhaps reply and consider all of that and uh, hopefully the rules as well in making your decision, I think is really helpful and important and you can always take a recess. Um, The judge runs the courtroom and if you need to take a recess, phone a friend, take a look at the case law, take a look at the rules, Um, you can do that because we want to get it right. These are important cases that have big impacts on people's lives that we're hearing and we wanna make sure that we make the right decision uh, to the best of our ability. And this just talks a little bit about more a little bit more about what I was saying as far as we control the presentation and the receipt of the evidence. We determine the mode, the order, the time limits um it's our job to make sure evidence is marked for identification to make and preserve our record and that recording is really an incredibly important part of the proceedings that we are presiding over because that's what any appeal is going to be based on it's what any judicial complaint would be based on you know all forms of review are based on that record that is being created in your courtroom so it's really important that we make things clear for the record that we make sure things are on the record so non recorded rulings definitely try not to make those (laughs) but if you do um, by accident or if it's your habit to take people into chambers and and discuss things you have to make sure that you go back on the record and preserve those rulings for the record so that they are there for purposes of appeal um, and so that people can understand the way that you came to your decisions in the case.
1: Can the two of you discuss the difference is between doing a bench trial and a jury trial in terms of allowing objections and making sure that you're creating a record?
2: Absolutely. Judge Williams, do you want to start off? Sure. Um, I, I, when you think
3: about well, the first thing you said when you were talking about uh, making sure there's a record of everything, you, you can just watch almost a judge uh, in any uh, uh episode of law and order and do not what they're doing. Uh they, they make uh rulings in elevators, they make you know rulings on the way to the cafeteria. They, you, know, you, you don't do that. You don't, you know, get into an elevator and say the confession is is in, the gun is out and have the doors slam on the prosecutor. Yeah, it looks good on TV, but you would would never actually do that. If the there's no jury there, you can let the attorneys or the parties babble in and say whatever they want to say within reason, because you're going to you're going to lose your patience uh, at some point. But you can you can let them make what sometimes people call speaking objections where you say I object and then they make a little speech. Um, If uh, a jury is present, you don't want them arguing uh, about whether something should come in and or in or out in front of the. Yeah, your honor, you have to let the murder weapon in, you know, you, you, you can't say something like that uh, in, in front of the jury, obviously. So I almost prefer if, if I can tell it's going to be a, a significant objection, and both sides are going to want to make a, a detailed record, and maybe I want to ask questions. I'll kick the jury out of the room and, and have them go back to the liberation room and or in the hallway or or something and they can, you know, get a drink of water or or whatever. Um, I don't I'm not a big fan of the the bench conference whisper whisper stuff. Uh, some of that stuff gets recorded, some of it doesn't. Maybe you're in in one of the newer courtrooms that has a white noise feature, so you can blot out. You know, part of the courtroom, and they get the jury gets static or something like that. But I, I would, if you can tell it's going to be a significant objection and it might take 15 minutes of court time, I don't, I don't like a bench conference as the way to do that. I have had attorneys request a bench conference in a bench trial, and I'm like, We're, there's no jury here. It's just uh, You know, you you can say whatever you want, but. Uh, I don't know, Uh, your approach might be different, but I I don't like um, long detailed objections in a whisper whisper mode at at a bench conference because you always wonder that the jury's hearing 10% of
2: the conversation
3: and and they might misinterpret something.
2: Yeah, we do um, have a have white noise here in Marana, but that does um, make it a little hard to think sometimes. (laughs) So um, if it's a brief objection, I'll let them come up, state their object, state the reason for their objection a response. And if I know that I can rule right then and there you know, I'll, I'll just make my ruling. Um, but I completely agree with Judge Williams. If it's if there's going to be any sort of back and forth or asking of questions of the attorneys, um, definitely it's easier just to excuse the jurors. As long as you're not doing it every five minutes, I think oftentimes they appreciate the opportunity to stand up, to stretch their legs. It wakes them up a little bit, and then you bring them back in and you have a very clear record that way. I think we have a couple questions.
1: We do, and we'll go with... Uh, Eva first, Eva. All right, uh, Eva, you are muted. All right, Maria.
0: Yes, uh, uh, having objections in a uh, trial with two attorneys in the prosecutor and defense attorney uh, can be rather easy, but can you can you address a self represented litigant. I um, mean, the prosecutors experienced, but you know, we're all human. And I'd like for you to address, let's say that there's no identification made, and there's no objection made, the role of the judge. Um, at, at you know, when, under those circumstances, can you can you address that, please?
2: I can start off and then Judge Williams, you can follow up if you'd like. I think those are hard situations as judges for sure. Um, What I try to do if I know that there's been inadmissible evidence that has come in because there's a self-represented litigant who did not object, when I'm making my ruling at the end of the trial, I will state I did not consider X, because it was hearsay, or or something along those lines, so that the record is clear that yes, that evidence may have come in, but I didn't accept it um, because I I know that it's legally inadmissible. I mean, we cannot help the um, self-represented litigants, but at the same time, I I think we have a duty to, uh, in a bench trial, consider what is admissible and, and be cognizant of what is not in making our rulings. Judge Williams, do you have any different or other uh, thoughts?
3: Well a lot of times, uh, especially after the prosecution objects, then or the other an attorney objects, the 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 self-representative again will start objecting all the time. And and they'll object quite frankly because they disagree with what the witness is saying. And so objection. I'm like, Well, what, what's your legal basis for the objection? Like, well, she's lying. I'm okay. You, you'll get a chance to ask questions. And and you sort of have to back up. A, a lot of people um, may not understand what the word hearsay is. And we'll, we'll talk about a, a very limited part of it. But we spent a semester in law school on on hearsay the exceptions to it. And uh, what's non hearsay. But People will bring a, a witness statement to court and, and hand it to you and say, well, this is, you know, and I'll say I I the other side will object to, to hearsay and I'll say, no, I, I can't consider hearsay will say, but it's notarized, you know, <laughs> or or something like that. Um, and then you just have to retreat a little bit and say and explain what what the rule is. And you say, you know hearsay says an out of court statement offered by someone who's not here offered to prove you know the truth of something that's that's in dispute now the reason i can't consider your the letter from your mother is your mother's not here for the other side to ask questions to. and so if you can just explain the rule and and maybe you know a slight public policy behind the rule then they'll understand if you just deny them, say, no, I can't consider that, then they think you're biased or a jerk or you're giving preference to lawyers or, or whatever. So that's that's one way. The other thing when she you, you said a, an ID hadn't occurred, um, you can't help either side perfect their case. Um, I had a case recently where uh, the county attorney did prep the witnesses and neither one of the neither the detect And there was an alcohol beverage control board witness and some other and a, a Phoenix Police Department uh, detective. So they weren't the regular people that are maybe regularly usually testifying in, in justice court cases. And neither one of them could say that the establishment was within the jurisdictional precinct, you know, within, within the boundaries of my court and uh, the attorney asked us "Well, is this what the boundary for the North Valley Justice Court?" And the well, the witnesses said, "Well, I don't actually don't know where the boundaries are. You know, for the North Valley Justice Court." And so, at the end of the case, um, the self-represented defendant didn't even spot the issue. Um, at the end of the case, I, I found him not guilty. Explained why I found him not guilty, and it didn't sink in because he thought he was not guilty based on the facts. And I said, "No, they they proved their case against you." Uh, they just didn't prove it happened here. So I have to find you not guilty. So don't do this again. Oh, no, I knew I was not guilty. But like, no, that's that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know if I'll see this defendant again. If I do, I hope the prosecution finds a witness that knows for the boundaries of my precinct. Law.
2: Yeah, then, I think. Uh, oh, sorry, God. Uh,
3: no, you continue
2: okay i was just gonna say i think um judge williams is is right on there and i think that the way we've uh explained to a self-represented litigant how the trial will proceed at the beginning of the trial is really important too because they need to know you know there's going to be a time for you to tell your side of the story there's going to be a time for you to ask questions of the witnesses and when it's time for you to ask questions of the witnesses you need to ask questions and not make statements, and then you can remind them of those things. So when they object because they just think it's not true, you can say, you know, as I told you, you'll have the opportunity to tell me your side of the story if you choose to do so. um, Once this witness is done, do you have any questions for the witness? Um, And if you've set the stage for that, then I think they maybe feel a little bit more satisfied that that they know what's going to happen and what the procedure is, even if you have to remind them of it a few times.
1: All right, and Eva has uh, had her hand up for a while.
2: (laughs) Well, I hope I'm finally unmuted. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. My question was very similar, but has to do with when parties are represented, but it's a new attorney who might not know when to object or how to make an objection. Do you, as a judge, help them, or do you... uh, I would think that because they are professional, you can't, but what do you do when someone does not make an objection that should be made and then everything proceeds? Do you just say that's their loss because they're inexperienced and they're poor litigants? Yeah. (laughs) I, I would say I would treat it the same as, as a self-represented litigant. I would try to use my ruling at the end to educate them on what they could have done better, and, and to make sure that the record is clear. But certainly, just as as I can't help the the self-represented litigant, I I would definitely try not to throw a bone to to the new attorney either. As tempting as it can be for both situations, both for self-represented and and newer attorneys, Judge that Williams.
3: That that might be the case in almost every DUI case. You may have a a twenty five year old prosecutor against a defense attorney who's been practicing for twenty five years. So that scenario happens all the time, and and you really can't help the prosecutor. I mean, I'll I'll give maybe feedback after the trial is over privately, um, but yeah, you sit there and you're going object what the hell's wrong with you you know but you just you just kind of have to sit there because your your job is to be neutral uh, their their supervisor's job is to, to fix their
2: trial procedure and tactic so this slide um just sets forth what the different sections of the rules of evidence address and i think the rules of evidence feel overwhelming i think to a lot of us but in reality it's not a big volume you know you've got that great big rule book that's like three or four inches thick and the rules of evidence are are a pretty small portion of that book um and so in preparation for this and as charles said the judicial conference uh, what i did is i just printed the rules of evidence And when you see that it's not this voluminous material, I think it can make you feel a little bit more confident, really, you know, jumping into it and understanding how it's organized and knowing where to go, depending on what the objection is or what the situation is. So I would encourage you to take a look at the rules of evidence on their own outside of that great big book. And I think that that will help um, in finding the rules that you need when making rulings and just overall feeling more confident and comfortable in dealing with the rules of evidence if that's not something that you've done for a long period of time. There you
0: go. And you're on a
2: headset. Okay. So the rules of evidence do not apply in, in a lot of hearings. Um, they don't apply in in suppression hearings. So a lot of the legal hearings that we do um, where we're determining probable cause, things like that, the rules of evidence don't actually apply. And I think a lot of lawyers don't know that. (laughs) A lot of judges don't know that. I was actually quite refreshed. I was in an evidentiary hearing earlier this week where the defense attorney objected to hearsay. But then he said, you know, if if you're inclined to to overrule my objection due to the type of hearing that we're in, I, I'll stop. And I said, yes, I I am going to, you know, overrule your objection because of, this is a suppression hearing. And so, um, but that's not always the case. A lot of times, um, attorneys will make very heated objections to things in suppression hearings that they just those objections don't apply in those types of hearings so um, that's important to know Um, protective order hearings you'll get a lot of objections in in protective order hearings as well if you have parties who are represented and in those hearings the only rule of evidence that applies is uh, the relevancy rule and there's a arizona rule of protective order procedure on point there that we've cited for you Grand jury proceedings, I don't do those. I presume that you all don't either, but the rules of evidence don't apply there. Um, Probation violation hearings, uh, we admit reliable evidence, but we don't have to look at all of the rules of evidence. And then um, civil traffic cases as well, the rules of evidence don't apply these um, more informal hearings. And then I'll let Judge Williams speak to small claims if he'd like, because I've never done a small claims hearing.
3: Small claims is the wild, wild west. There's there are no rules of evidence, no discovery, uh, very minimal pleading standards. There are now rules that govern small claims hearings That's the relatively new development. But for the for the most part, small claims hearings are still trial by ambush. And you can, you can do whatever almost in a small claims hearing, and you can't appeal them. So I, w- when I talked to small claims hearing officers and I told them that they're the most powerful judicial officer in the state of Arizona. I'm not being completely sarcastic. But, but once they make a decision, that's the decision, and there's there there's no real mechanism to appeal or change it. Judge
2: Felix? Okay, <laughs> here I go again. Um,
0: on protective orders or even on other type of cases, though, again, with PRO-PERS, they want to admit uh, police reports. Are you saying
2: you admit those? Uh, I believe you could um, in a protective order hearing. Um, it's it, If you find that it's relevant, um, It, I, I believe it could come in. Judge Williams, do you feel differently?
3: i I think you probably can the so, and you just have to announce maybe that just because if people think police reports conclusively establish something, um, and you just have to say, you know I'll consider this, but i'll I'll give it the same weight as as everything else. you know it if if the police were called, that's a useful fact. what the person told the police department or the police officer, you know, that day may or may not impact this space a whole lot. I usually don't get police reports. I get what I call run sheets or some kind of partial like 911 response thing, you know, and it'll it'll say assault and the person will hand it to me. say, see, this establishes an assault happened. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It means someone called the police and said there was an assault. Um, But you can't admit them. I, I don't think you can admit them uh, and just rest in, a, in an eviction case that we that's not what you that wasn't your question but I think if you're going to evict someone you need to apply the rules of evidence and have a lot more than just have the property manager walk up and hand you a police report.
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I I wouldn't accept that as the only, I mean, I might accept it, but I wouldn't necessarily find it persuasive as the only evidence in the case. But I think that um in these more informal hearings where something like that is admissible they can serve value you know there can be statements that are either consistent or inconsistent with testimony and and that might go to someone's credibility or um to the underlying facts so I I have had I'm sure a handful of protective order hearings where I have um admitted the police reports at, at the request of one of the parties Um, As far as discretion, um, this is, uh, as it says here, you're the trial judge. You have discretion. You can't abuse it, um, but you need to use it. And it's important that when you are using your discretion that you say that you're using your discretion and you say what you're basing that on because that's how you make that record. Um, And making the record, as we talked about, is an incredibly important part of your job. And there are things about your rulings that the uh, appellate court can't see. You know, you can see someone's body language, you can see uh, the their tone and things like that, it, Whereas if a transcript is getting admitted, that isn't something that the reviewing court is going to be able to see. So I think it's really important that when you're making a ruling, you acknowledge what it is you are basing that on and and how you are using your discretion so that you can protect your record. Foundation.
3: Yeah, okay. foundation Thanks. is the Probably the second most common objection. The the first one is relevancy. The second one is foundation, and foundation really confuses. But sometimes it confuses attorneys. It it almost always confuses self-represented litigants, and it's just like the first bullet that there says how how does the witness know what he or she is, is testifying about? Um, a a party or an attorney just can't hand the judge a document and say, here, this helps my case. You know, they they have to establish a, a, a factual basis for for what that document is, how they know what it is and and how it relates to something that they have to. Otherwise, the judge won't know that it's genuine. Um, often only it, it only takes two, two questions sometimes to establish foundation is, you know, you hand the witness Something and say, what is it? How do you know that? Um, and those two questions will frequently establish foundation. Now, if you have someone representing themselves um, and the attorney objects on foundation, and it's something, you know, the, the self representative litigant is trying to introduce uh, a photograph they took, you know, on the other side of objection. And you're, you look at the attorney and and maybe at that point you, you do help a little bit and so you don't you don't say it you may think it you don't get to be a jerk you know and so you just look at the the self-represented litigant and say what is that how do you know what it is and if they can answer those questions then uh, there's a there's a chance um that that will come into evidence we'll, we're going to talk about foundation for a photograph later but you know why should these blood tests be admitted how do we know that this gun has anything to do with the case, and this is stuff that you ask um, person seeking to offer the evidence. Ask this before they seek admission. They don't ask, you know, twenty questions about a piece of paper that no one has shown you, and then say, "I'd like this admitted," and the other side objects, and they say, "No." Then, you know, what do you do with all that testimony? What do you do with uh, everything else? So before they, they shouldn't be asking questions about something uh, other than to lay a foundation before it's admitted into evidence. If it's not admitted into evidence, then the, the judge can't consider it um, and they move on to their their next set of, of questions. Um, but foundation is, is often more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, but the, I, I guess I'll just say again, Often, the foundation for almost anything can be established by what is it and how do you know? Um, Now, if you have a witness testifying about something they have no knowledge of, then you have to ask, someone will have to ask the witness, how do you know about that? You know, what, what did you see? Where were you? All those kinds of things. But does anyone have any questions just in general on foundation before we get to some specific examples? Apparently not. So we can go on to the next slide. The foundation for a photograph. Um, photographs used to be kind of the best evidence out there. And then, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, someone came up with Photoshop. <laughs> and now photographs are maybe completely unreliable, uh, almost as, as evidence in a lot of situations. I, I, I can't tell that something's been photoshopped. So it becomes more important to lay a, a foundation for a photograph in court now than maybe it did 20 years ago. But um, one myth on laying the foundation for a photograph, is you don't have to call the person doesn't have to call the photographer as a witness. Um, you don't you don't have to call the person who took the photograph. If the witness can testify about these other elements that are presented on the site slide there. If the witnesses can say, yes, I'm familiar with the playground. Um, I walk by this playground every day. I recognize that, you know, there's a jacket in the picture on the playground and this photograph is a fair and accurate depiction of, you know, that that jacket on the playground um, or the playground equipment or whatever you're trying to use that photograph for a broken window. Um, then uh, the attorney will probably turn to you and say, "I move for the objection." of or, or I move. I move for the admission of this photograph. And then you'll say, "You have the objections to the other side." And depending on who's on the other side, you may or may not get an objection. Um, if it's a self-represented litigant again trying to offer this, you can just say, "Depending on the circumstances." The, the judge um, can essentially ask these questions, because you're you and, and then see if there's some other basis for the, an objection to the photograph. Remember, you're trying to decide the case based on the merits of the case, you're not trying to decide the case based on some hyper technical application of the rules of evidence. So if you have someone representing themselves, and they're nervous, and you can tell they're nervous, and I've even had people, you know, when they walk up to hand me a photograph, their hands are visibly shaking, you know, because they're just. You're in a courtroom every day. They're not. They're they're scared. Um, and if the only objection to, to some uh, a photograph that the the self they really get took of his backyard is foundation, then, um, uh, I, I would strongly consider just. Applying the questions myself, but this is what you're looking for when someone says, "I need to admit a photograph into evidence." The next two slides are are trickier. Um, We get in some regular cases, um, more and more in eviction cases, and I'll say in almost every order protection or injunction against harassment case we get requests to admit social media or screenshots of text messages or something like that. Um, I'm always thankful if the people have at least printed these documents out when someone walks up and hands me their phone and says scroll it. um, The only thing you can do at that point is is to read it in the record. And sometimes you don't you end up reading curse words and racial slurs (laughs) and other things into the record, which is awkward at best. But um, you have to establish that the witness has the social media page that they have control over it, and that they can recognize it. So we used Facebook as an example here. Um, I still use Facebook because I have gray hair. Um, my daughter has a Facebook page, I don't think she's been on it since the Obama administration. Um, but Uh, some of us still use Facebook, but this would work for Instagram or, or, or or whatever, I guess. But you know, do you have a Facebook page? Is it currently active? Who has access to it? Does anyone else have the authorization to update or edit it? Um, Then you can hand the attorney at that point would hand uh, the printout. Um, What is this? Does it appear to be a fair and accurate representation of your Facebook page? Has it been altered? And then that's it, it would come in very similar to the same way a photograph would come in, the evidence. Um, While people are trying to offer their own social media or text messages, uh, the next slide shows that frequently they're trying to offer someone else's uh, social media or text messages. And this gets even trickier because the person, the person who's the witness still has to somehow say that I know that this is genuine. So the questioning could start off with, are you familiar with you know, the defendant's uh, you know, text message? Are you familiar with his uh, social media page? Do, do you communicate with them on a regular basis through this? And how do you communicate with them? Did you, did you receive this text message on this date? How do you know it's from them? Um, if you were, would, would you recognize it? Yes, what is it? And then it becomes just the same as a a photograph uh, foundation at that point. But more and more people want to introduce uh, messages that they got from someone else. The other side will say, I didn't send that. Um, And then you just have to decide if you want to admit it and try to guess or or weigh the evidence based on what else you have. Um, People create fake Phone numbers and fake social media accounts for the very purpose of harassing somebody else. Um, and so I says, well, I I've never seen this phone number before, but I know it comes from him because this these are the, this is the same thing he's called me four other times and three other phone numbers. Um, I would be inclined to admit something like that as evidence. The other side can deny it. And you just weigh the evidence like you have to for any other judge but has, does anyone have any unique issues um with trying to admit social media other than just the format or it is it is confusing someone to hand through their phone and we well, just read this and I'm, well it that, that, that doesn't really work that way i think that
2: um judge williams made a good point, though, you know, we want to decide cases on their merits, right? I mean, we don't want to admit inadmissible evidence or evidence that hasn't been properly admitted. But where there is a way to admit evidence that is relevant to your decision in the case, um, whether it be reading those text messages into the record, like Judge Williams gave the example or sometimes you'll all have parties want to admit videos, but they didn't bring them on some sort of device that or like a flash drive or a DVD or something that could be admitted and oftentimes they'll say are you it, trying to admit it for what I can see or for what I can hear. And if it's you know, because oftentimes a protective order, it's going to be yelling or screaming or or something like that, you know, I'll say, Okay, well, we can play the recording and it, it can be captured on the record. So if if you're admitting it for what you want me to hear, then I can still admit it. If you're admitting it for what you want me to see, I mean, I I will admit I have at times, depending on the situation, narrated, watched it and narrated what I've seen for the record. Um, you know, depending uh, if you're dealing with a civil case that already has relaxed rules applied to it. I mean, I wouldn't do that in a criminal case, certainly but in a protective order case or a civil traffic case you know if I feel that I can make a good record and decide the case on the merits and I'm not doing anything that's inadmissible um, I I will try to give the parties every benefit um, to getting that evidence in that is going to help me decide the case based on the merits
3: I agree 100 percent next we have a discussion question which maybe we can get some discussion on Um, And it's along the same line. It's uh, uh, information that was recovered from a phone. A law enforcement agent obtained messages between a criminal defendant and third parties from a phone found at the defendant's apartment. The agent testified the number in the messages was one an informant used to communicate with the defendant. Uh, The defendant claims he never sent the messages. How many people would admit the phone messages? How many people would deny them Um, if if you want to run some kind of analysis in your head and you just want to think out loud that that works too. Um, We did a recent uh, training where we had a a voting feature and it it seemed to work really well. Um, Sometimes the voting features at the judicial conference don't work as well, but uh, This one seemed to work pretty well and it seemed to work but um, some of you made the mistake of signing in by your name so I could call on you. Uh, But uh, how many people? Does anyone want to speak in favor of admitting um, that information? Does anyone want to speak against admitting the information? And if no one wants to speak on either side, I'll just ask how many people would rather take a break and go out
2: to get some ice cream. Um. Make sure everybody's still paying attention. Yeah. Quiet group. Oh, somebody's laughing at us. I can see their little emoji at the bottom of the screen. Is that you, Charles? Okay. All, right. All right. Uh, right. Mr. can
1: you, you?
3: Yeah. So
1: I have quite enough information here because what are we? what are they asking to have admitted the uh the portions of the messages from the informant or the statements of the defendant and does you know both of those are going to be hearsay and does it qualify for any hearsay so there's there's some more analysis i believe that has to be done
3: I think you're right and and this raises a good a really good point just because something passes a a foundation hurdle doesn't mean it's automatically admitted it it can be genuine it can still be hearsay it can be uh very reliable and still not disclosed so there are lots of issues here um I I apologize I didn't reread the case uh Today, so I can't remember everything uh, that uh, Mr. Felsky was was pointing out. But if we can go to the next slide, it has the answer. This is based on a uh, an unpublished opinion, of course, because all good information is in unpublished opinions. But the Ninth Circuit actually let this in, and they said any arguments that the messages were sent by some other person other than the defendant went to the weight and not the admissibility. So they, they let it come in, um, which was maybe interesting, uh, depending on how you you view the, the Ninth Circuit from time to time. But the they said no, it can come in. And if the defendant wants to deny it, you can deny it. And this was this same phrase was on an earlier slide. If if it's a close call and you just want to say, look, I'll I'll hear it and get whatever weight it it deserves. You can always say I'll admit it and find uh, you know, I understand that you're saying you never sent this. Um, She's saying she received it from you. Um, I find that that goes to the weight, not the admissibility. So I'll admit it and understand that that you're disagreeing that you ever sent it and and that uh, that's easy in an order of protection hearing. It's harder in a criminal case, but um, that is one option that
2: you have. I'm a big fan of. I'll admit it and give it the weight I feel it deserves, um, especially in in those civil cases. But even in criminal cases, sometimes it, it's a bench trial. You know there there may be evidence that is not incredibly persuasive but still tends to make a facted issue more or less likely and and so you can admit it and and give it the weight it deserves under the circumstances when you don't have to worry about prejudicing the jury as well so that's a good one
3: this case is interesting and it's worth reading um because it has a lot of um guidance some people would call it dicta uh about just how the appellate court at the time felt about uh, social media and and stuff recovered in general but in this case it was a it was a criminal case the defendant appealed his conviction for trafficking stolen property one of the appellate issues was whether his facebook message which um, offered a, a stolen tablet for sale and the search history logs were admitted as evidence so he he stole something and posted it on Facebook for sale. Um, it is what he what he had done. And the they upheld his conviction, but they didn't really like social media stuff. The Arizona Court of Appeal said social media social media communications, when offered to prove the truth of what the user said, fall outside the scope of the business record exception to hearsay, and that they're not self-authenticating under the rules of evidence when they're offered for that purpose. A party can may authenticate communication under the rules of, evi- of, of evidence, governing authentication, using a wide variety of evidence, bearing in mind that social media evidence poses some special challenges because of the great ease with which accounts may be falsified or accessed or accessed by an imposter. So that's kind of uh, accurate it's also kind of strong language that says, hey, we don't really like this stuff because we can't tell if it's genuine or not. And so we gave the example earlier. If they can meet that criteria, then it, it comes in. But um, this stuff is inherently dangerous because anybody can pretend to be anybody on on social media. And next we're
2: back at relevance yes yeah, so <laughs> relevance is is a huge part of of our job as judges you know I think that slide very early on indicated that it, it's our job to to get let evidence in that's relevant keep evidence out that's not relevant so we need to know what relevance is and um it is something that has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence and the fact that it is having any tendency to make more or less probable is a fact of consequence in determining the action so i i think it's important to note here that It's a pretty broad standard. It has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence. That's where I kind of get back to the, uh, I'll admit it and give it the weight it deserves. You know, A lot of evidence is going to have some relevance if it has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be. So um, that's kind of the baseline that we're looking at in determining whether evidence is admissible.
3: I was just going to add uh, a retired now judge, uh, Stephen McMurray, his standard for relevance was, am I bored? Um, If if I'm bored, there's a chance what I'm listening to is not relevant to the case, Um, which is kind of a good standard unless you're you're bored all the time Uh, by what's going on in front of you in in the courtroom, then it's not uh, necessarily a great standard. But that is one thing, it's like, wow, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with the case. Wait a minute, why am I listening to this? It's not relevant.
1: Yeah, my my
3: rewrite of that
1: is, does it matter?
2: Yeah, that's probably a, a bit, has a bit broader application, but I, I get the general idea of both and I, and I think they are are valuable. I think the problem with the am I board um, is a lot of times irrelevant evidence can be very entertaining. You know, it can be something that is, is really juicy or, or something that you would love to hear more about, but really has nothing to do with the ultimate facts that are at, at issue in the case. So that is important to to keep an eye out for as well. You know, there might be facts that are um, that are very inflammatory and are are simply not relevant to a fact at issue. But of course, the proponent wants to get them in because they're inflammatory. So that's something that we need to to keep an eye out for as well.
1: And the other problem with boring is if you've done a DUI jury trial with the expert uh, testifying, it it can be hard to stay awake through some of that. So
2: Indeed. where so we got to make sure our jurors are awake. And then are you advancing that Charles? You look like you might, oh, there we go. You look like you might have frozen there for a moment. Um, So relevant evidence may be excluded. It doesn't say it must be excluded. So again, that's where your discretion comes in. If it's probative value is substantially outweighed by a danger of one or more of the following. So unfair prejudice, confusing the issues, misleading the jury, undue delay, wasting time, or needlessly presenting cumulative evidence. And I think it's important to note that it says that the probative value is substantially outweighed. So there's an analysis here. It, you know, is the probative value just a little bit outweighed by the the danger of wasting time? I mean, I, I think as judges, I'll refer back to Charles's DUI trial example there are some things that we go over over and over again and, and we feel like time may be being wasted but is the probative value substantially outweighed by the danger of of waste of time is, is what the analysis is there so it's important to note that it may be excluded and that you're looking at unfair prejudice too not just any prejudice but the prejudice has to be unfair um, so there, there are a lot of moving parts too, to that definition that you want to consider before you exclude evidence that is relevant and I guess this goes just a little bit more to the points that I was making it's not just prejudice um jury confusion Does that come in in a bench trial it's kind of like what Judge Williams was speaking about when he said somebody asked for a bench conference at a bench trial (laughs) hopefully, we're not going to be confused by letting in relevant evidence that has some danger, you know, we, it, it's our job to be able to parse out what's relevant, what's not, what's prejudicial and what's not, we're the ones making that ultimate decision as to to the relevance and the admissibility of the evidence. So probably jury confusion isn't something that's going to apply in in the case of a bench t- trial. Um, and but it is the danger of those things so a danger of unfair prejudice it doesn't have to absolutely positively be unfairly prejudicial it has to have a danger that it is unfairly prejudicial so um, again we're, we're using our discretion here where it's a balancing test and we just want to make sure that um, in our rulings we explain the rationale behind the discretion that we're exercising and then does that take us to our break Charles I think we have a 15 minute break brought built in right you're muted Charles
1: we can either take a break or work through it and finish at three uh, thirty. whatever you would prefer
2: doesn't matter to me I'm not going I, anywhere. I don't I don't
3: have a preference either way
2: Right, let's um, keep on trekking let's keep okay
3: going. all right um we talked about this earlier it, it, admissible evidence for protective order uh, hearings um they have relaxed rules of evidence um basically the only rule of evidence is relevancy and again that's a, like we pointed out earlier it's a wimpy standard um something to take any Any fact of consequence that has any tendency to make any fact of consequence more likely true than not. Um, And it doesn't come in if it's unfair or uh, cumulative, basically, or or you're just wasting everybody's time. Uh, I begin my order protection hearing by saying today, one of the things I say is today's hearing is going to be about what's in paragraph four of the petition. And then uh, both sides will try to find a copy of the petition and both sides will look at paragraph four. But if, if you don't limit the scope of the hearing, right off the bat, uh, my experience is you're going to have all kinds of problems. that um, you, you have to keep the main thing the main thing. Um, parties typically have uh, uh, a lengthy history uh, between the two of them, and some of it may have nothing to do uh, with what the issue that you have in front of you. Um, if someone reported someone else to the HOA five years ago, I may not care, you know, about that fact unless it, it is somehow relevant, that it maybe it's background or, or something like that. But people use order protection hearing uh, for a variety of reasons. Um Many of them, of course are are very, very legitimate uh, victims um, you know, the, where the plaintiff comes in and, and, and needs protection because someone is stalking them or harassing them or or, or whatever the the unfortunate situation is. but uh, if people want to use the order protection hearing to determine who's a better parent or who's a better spouse or, or, or something like that, or whose fault it was, they broke up. That those are things that I'm not interested in. I'm interested in what's in paragraph four of the petition. And I tell them, that's what the plaintiff has to prove. I explain the standards for keeping the order in effect. I go over who's going to speak when, what cross-examination means. And, and we go from there. But a, a lot of what is in an order protection hearing or what the parties want to bring in is not maybe relevant um, to the proceeding, although you have very, very broad discretion. Now, there's been now a not so recent rule change that's explained on the next slide. um, Where what's in paragraph four can essentially change. So this this is the only uh, place I know of in American law where uh, the subject matter can change on the day of the trial. Uh, it, I thought that this was going to be a lot bigger problem than it has than it turned out to be. I still don't like the rule, but it, it hasn't caused me as, as many problems as I thought it would. And this is at a contested hearing. If the plaintiff is testifying, and there, there are sound reasons for the rule when they when people come in and request an order of protection they're scared, they may leave out some details, they may leave out some other additional events that are really, really important. i have mean, had people in the courtroom come in and get an order of protection. And they say, Well, you know, he drives by my house and stares at me. And uh, he sent me a text, 12 months, 11 months ago, that was threatening. And, and I'm like, Well, okay, is is, is there anything else as well? He pulled a gun on me last night. I'm like, okay, well, that's the kind of thing that needs to be in, in paragraph four of your petition. And if there's time, then I'll, I'll direct them to a computer where they can add that to paragraph four of the petition and go from there. But if that's blurted out at the, the day of the hearing, um, you can have sort of an expanded relevancy concept um, where, okay, that's going to be relevant to whether or not you keep an order protection in place. And so at that point, um, you're supposed to stop the hearing um, and let the defendant decide uh, if he wants to continue the hearing, if he wants a brief recess to talk about the issue or or with with his attorney or or just try to find a witness or or something, Um, or after you, you explain these options, that he can either uh, take a recess and, and think about it, you can request a delay or you can just press on with the hearing. Um, then the defendant gets to make that decision. Uh, I try to avoid this by at the beginning of the hearing. And I ask, is there anything else you'd like to add? And and sometimes the the victim will say yes, sometimes the victim will say no, but that at least keeps you from getting 45 minutes into a hearing that you you may have to continue. So I'm I'm curious what other other people's experience has been with this rule, I thought it was going to create a nightmare in every single order protection hearing that I was going to have and I really haven't seen that. Um, uh,
2: Yeah, my experience has been similar, I I thought, as you did that it was going to be an issue a lot more often um than then it has been so I I've had you know a couple of hearings where things have been added but you know uh, compared to the number of hearings that I've had that haven't I it, it's a definitely a, a very small number I also think that um relevance is important here because a lot of times you know there might be six allegations in the petition and you know for a an order of protection you only need one act of domestic violence and so sometimes there will be you know three or four really weak not necessarily grounds to issue an order incidents and then there will be a fifth incident that you're like all right that's that's the incident, you know, you, you've proven it there. And then you come to the contested hearing and the defendant wants to argue about numbers one through four. And it, and I will just say I didn't consider items one through four in issuing the order The the item that I considered in issuing the order was number five. Um, so that's if you have, you know, if you want to contest that incident or that allegation. Um, that's where we should focus our energy on in the hearing i suppose if you're not the judge that did the initial order you might not have the benefit of that um but i often do it that way to kind of try to narrow the issues at the contested hearing where possible obviously still giving them the opportunity to proceed under rule 38d if they if the plaintiff chooses to do so
3: habit versus character and this is Kind of confusing. I don't know. I, I was trying to remember the last time I tried to have someone introduce evidence of a habit in a limited jurisdiction court case, and I couldn't really come up with one. Um, I I just don't see people try to use it that often. Habit is something that is admissible almost all the time if if if, if it's relevant and you can establish that someone has some kind of habit, um, and that's a specific event. Um, That gives uh, sort of a narrow range of options. When confronted with this, this always happens. And so, I don't know if he needed to prove that a bank always locks the door at 6 p.m. But if that was something, you know, that you wanted to that you wanted to prove in the case, and uh, or one of the sides wanted to prove, and they come forward and says, well, you know, this guy leaves at six o'clock every day, and right before he leaves, the last thing he does is he locks the front door. That May or may not be important to a case, but that that would be a habit. Um, I guess you could try to establish a habit that someone always uses their turn signal. That would be something that I could see would be relevant in in a case. You know, you could say, "Oh yeah, you know, Mom always uses her her uh, turn signal." We we make fun of her because she'll use her turn signal on a on a you know, dark highway when we're the only car between here and Payson, you know, she's still using her turn signal, you know, that's just stupid. And so we make fun of her. I, I I guess it would be possible. I mean, there are lots of cases that we see where someone using their turn signal would be relevant. But I guess you could try to establish that someone uh, has a habit of always using their turn signal uh, before they change lanes or, or make a turn. Um, so habit evidence, Almost always admissible character evidence. Oddly, almost always is not, and that's what you hear about on the news. That's what you hear about in movies. That's what people come to court. Either I brought a character witness with me. Um, lots of people do that all the time. Character evidence usually is not admissible. Now, it can be if there's some kind of relevant character trait that you're on trial for. You know, if it's a criminal case, it's a, and you're being accused of domestic violence, um, say, it's a domestic violence assault. Uh, if the defendant wants to bring a witness to say to testify that he's a peaceful person, that's probably admissible. That that character evidence is probably going to be admissible because it goes to a, a trait that's an issue. The same thing maybe with a fraud or a theft uh, type case. The, the downside, though, for the defendant is if you offer a good character evidence, then the prosecution gets to rebut it with bad character evidence. So normally, the prosecutor can't offer a witness just to say you're a bad person. But if you offer a witness to say, I'm a good person, then the prosecution gets to offer a witness to say you're a bad person. Let's see. What about the person who serves five-day notices for an apartment complex? I'm sorry, Judge Huberman, your your question went away before I can see the rest of it. I the
1: read read. Is, you got the it. question is what what about the person who serves the five-day notices for an apartment complex who doesn't remember this case in particular, but says this is what I always write when I serve a notice in hand. So this notice was given to the tenant in hand.
3: That's a perfect example of 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 a habit. That's a very good one. One that I should have thought of when I was preparing this lecture. Um, that doesn't mean that she did it at that time, but it means that look, I don't I don't remember this case. I just do it this, this way every single time. That's uh, an example of maybe people that do the the aliquots for the testing on on blood. You know, it's like look, I don't remember this this racket test tube you know, that that I ran through the machine. I just know I do it the same way every single time. So that's how I can say it was done correctly on this occasion. Um, and then there's another, the, the next slide talks about a way for a prosecution to maybe sneak in bad character uh, evidence. Um, When I learned 404B, I learned it, we we called it uncharged misconduct. Um, Maybe other people call it different things. But um, evidence of the defendant's bad character is usually inadmissible. If the the prosecution is trying to present evidence that just shows the defendant's a bad person, the defendant or the defendant's attorney should be uh, objecting um, because that doesn't come in. Um, There is... uh, a pretty significant exception, though, and the state will need to come up with some kind of non-character theory of relevancy to get it in. An and they'll say, "No, no, no, we're not showing that. We're not offering this testimony to show that he's, um, he's a bad person. We're just showing that it goes to his motive, his uh, truthfulness, his uh, modus operandi. What?" whatever. Um, and it goes from there. The uh, there's a, a note there in the criminal case that you can't surprise uh, the defendant with this stuff at trial, you, you have to uh, give notice and a, uh, a reason that you're seeking to admit it. But most of us remember, uh, I'm going to take a wild stab that most of us have seen the movie Home Alone, uh, at least once, uh, all the way through. Well, in Home Alone, the two villains, um, when they would break into houses, um, one of the villains would would stop up the sinks and turn the water on and say, we're the we're the wet bandits. Um, And so if you're, if you're the prosecutor, and you're trying to prove that they broke in to a series of houses, maybe you didn't charge them with criminal damage, you know, blood, you know, flooding the kitchens. But you would, you would say, oh no, I'm not trying to uh, trying to offer the evidence just to show that they're a bad person. I'm trying to show that they this is consistent. They did this every single time they broke into someone's house. They they stopped up the kitchen sink and left the water running, and they even went by the phrase wet bandits. So that tends to show that they committed you know other crimes or, or wrongs, and it's admissible under 404B because I'm not showing that. But they're just bad people. I'm showing that they do this all the time. That would maybe be one example of uh, other crimes or wrongs or or something like that. I I don't really see that we get this issue that much. Um, I don't know what you're what you're seeing. How much uncharged misconduct or other just bad information about defendants? Prosecutors are trying to offer in in your courts um my solution to uncharged misconduct when i was prosecuting cases is like just it. <laughs> then no one can object to it because it's a charged defense and uh you can uh offer a truckload of evidence in support of it then anyone else have any stories or thoughts on uh the prosecution trying to get bad character evidence in through one of these exceptions
2: It does not happen very often in my court at all. Okay, I think we're back over to me. So, Rule Six Eleven. This talks about how we, as judges, have the obligation to to exercise control over the mode and order of examining witnesses, presenting evidence. uh, to avoid waste of time, protect witnesses from harassment or undue embarrassment, and that we may impose reasonable trial time limits. Um, so, these are this rule is very important to making sure that our trials run smoothly and efficiently, um, and that the parties understand what our parameters are. So, it's definitely something you can use. I mean, you you can allow witnesses to be called out of order if you need to do that to keep a case moving. You do not need to let a witness be be badgered by by an attorney or or a pro or a self-represented litigant who is examining them in a way that they shouldn't be. You know, it's your obligation as the judge to to maintain the decorum of the courtroom to keep proceedings running efficiently. Um, and to avoid that harassment and undue embarrassment as well Um, the reasonable trial time limits you know that's something that if you're having cases time and time again with the same parties and you realize geez you know we're always going into three days with these trials because the attorney's closing arguments go on for two hours you know you you can limit their closing argument to an hour you you have the the right to do that under the rules you're going to give them notice that that's what you're going to do it's you're not going to wait until they show up on the day of closing to say oh and i'm only giving you an hour and then their whole plan that they had you know goes out the window But that is certainly something that you have the ability to do as a judge. And I think that you get what your expectations direct is is a very good way of saying it. You know, as judges, and we can want to accommodate, uh, I certainly (laughs) sometimes go overboard in trying to accommodate the parties, um, and then the more you do that, the more people kind of chip away at you and, and get even more than you're willing to give them. So we always want to be respectful. We always want to maintain the decorum of the courtroom. But it's also our job to set those those expectations of how a trial is going to proceed, how much time it's going to take, how people are going to be treated in the courtroom. It's it's very important that we do that, and it's Rule 611 that gives us the the discretion and the obligation to do that. Uh, An objection that you may get a fair amount that is not a good objection in Arizona is um, objection goes beyond the scope of cross. So your prosecutor does their direct examination, your defense attorney cross examine cross examines the witness, and then the prosecutor um oh I'm sorry I misspoke there so it's the cross examination is not bound by the scope of direct is what's in 611 E so basically in in Arizona both parties can ask the witnesses the questions that they want to ask you know and they're not bound by what the other party has asked even on redirect um it may go beyond the scope of cross the issue is the state can always recall their witness (laughs) so um, if you're looking at efficiencies, you know, it may not be the most efficient thing to to limit the scope on redirect and then have the prosecutor recall the witness. So, again, you're you're using your discretion under Rule 611 and uh, making the trial run as efficiently as possible. Um. Leading questions not allowed on direct, except as necessary to develop the witness's testimony and ordinarily are allowed on cross examination. So, you know, you you will get leading objections. It's important to know that leading is not. You get a lot of leading objections for questions that are not leading. So just because something's a yes or no question doesn't mean it's a leading question. A leading question suggests the answer. So it's an isn't it true that or this is what happened, right? Or or something like that. Just was it raining that day? That's not suggesting that it was raining. It's a yes or no question. Either it was raining or it wasn't. So oftentimes defense counsel will object that a question is leading that's not truly a leading question. So you want to make sure that if you're sustaining a leading objection, it's because the question does suggest what the answer should be. And not just because it's a yes or no question or because there's a fair amount of information in the question that doesn't make it a leading question either.
3: It, it's also okay to ask leading questions as preliminary matters or when you're establishing a foundation. I mean, you can get to the absurd point where you say, what is your name? You know, where do you live? And the objection leading it presupposes that he has an address, you know, Stop it. Just, you know, if, if, if you have an attorney who's objecting to everything um, as a leading question, just say, I, I, you know, you'll have a chance to cross or or, or start to start um, overruling some of the objections and maybe go if they can. But in theory, you can make an argument that almost anything is a leading question, but you end up wasting a lot of time arguing about objections when you could just have the witness answer whether or not there's a photograph in front of him.
2: And then I think we're back to you. Judge yeah, we works. are. It's
3: my turn to talk again anyway. Okay. Um, there are lots of things that people can give an opinion on that you don't have to have any specialized knowledge for. You can just give a, a lay opinion. The, the problem is if um, they start to come into the expert opinion realm, but as a, a, just a regular witness, um, give an opinion on stuff that they personally perceive. They it, it's, it doesn't have to be based on any kind of specialized knowledge or or fact finding or, or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I stood next to him, I saw him, he smelled drunk, he looked drunk to me. Uh, he fell down, he threw up on my shoes. Um, a, a witness could say that he doesn't have the witness doesn't have to have any specialized, you know, forensic training, or or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so, so what is your name? So I've actually had some people uh, refuse to give their name in, in court. They they say that they're a, they're really a corporation or they're really. Uh, I had one guy. who said he was a a life in being, whatever that means. And so I finally indicated that someone's essence was there, but he wasn't there. And so after I asked several times on the record, if if this person was there and that person kept saying, No, he wasn't, I I defaulted. That made him upset. Um, So you you can get some interesting stuff sometimes. But uh, you know, if someone says they grow, you know, they grow by me really fast, it looked like they were speeding. To me, you know, someone's age, you know, someone can it can testify maybe about the effects of alcohol or something like that. Um, those are all things that that come into evidence. The difference is they uh, an expert witness can state a conclusion, whereas a a, a regular witness or a, a, a lay witness cannot. Um, the next one, slide has some additional examples of uh, lay opinions um, you know the the acquired uh, on the job uh, experience on on how water splashes, or in this case, unfortunately, how blood splashes. Um, you can say again the it looked like the vehicle was speeding, um, and there's the the case for Mesa. There, it's well accepted that even a late witness can give a person opinion as to intoxication. So. Um, it's safe to say that by the time you reach a certain age in your life, you can identify what a drunk person looks like just by virtue of your life experiences, maybe whether or not you've been uh, intoxicated yourself or not. Now, that's in contrast to an expert opinion. Um, uh, an expert opinion is something that has some kind of specialized knowledge, training, skill, uh, usually scientific or some kind of technical expertise. And it's up to the judge, uh, believe it or not, to decide if the witness is qualified. Um, and the analysis that you you go through, and it's spelled out in Rule 702, is will the evidence assist the trier of fact uh, to understand something that's an issue? And that's probably going to be a, a yes. Uh, is the evidence reliable? Does it focus on principles and methods and not just a conclusion? Um, you know, if there's some kind of background for it? The, judge, the, the witnesses they can't say a conclusion, they have to have some kind of data or research or something to base for scientific tests to base that conclusion on. And if you get an objection to say the other person's not qualified as an expert, then it's your job as a judge to determine whether or not uh, that person can be qualified as an expert. And if not, what limited things they can testify to. Hopefully you get some notice of this and you're not doing it on the day of the trial. And you're certainly not doing it while there's a jury waiting. Um, In the case of uh, our DUI cases that we we're, we're going to hear an expert witness, Um, probably in every single case, it's going to be some kind of uh, toxicologist from DPS who's going to come over. And I haven't really ever seen the defense object to the criminalist that that the state calls. Maybe it happens some, but for the most part um, that comes in. If you have uh, a case that's a little more outside the mainstream. Maybe you have a civil case on home repair after a storm and you have to decide if if the witness is a mold damage expert or not, then you would have to run this analysis. And have they had any training? Have they had this, you know, do do they have uh, an educational background and you just sort of have to run the checklist And the next slide in rule 702, it it lays it out fairly well, if you if you follow the rule of evidence, and make a finding as to each point as you're you're doing it, you can do it verbally, Um, you can do it in in writing if you want to write up something more detailed. But you know, I would, I, I would definitely put it in the record why you're finding that this particular witness is an expert witness. And you can just say it's based on, you know, the the plaintiff offered evidence of this. You know, I find this meets seven hundred two a. The plaintiff offered this. You know, this person has a degree in uh, forensic biology. You know, therefore, you know, I'm going to know something about mold. Um, and then just just go through all of those checklists, and then uh, there's a a jury instruction that says expert uh, testimony is not any more important than anybody else's testimony. So uh, you could have three, I'll call them normal or regular or lay witnesses or whatever, that say one thing. You could have an expert say something else, and you're free not to believe the expert witness. Uh, if you get a jury instruction, if you're, if you're doing a jury trial, you'll get you'll read a jury instruction that says you're free to believe or, or not believe the, the testimony of the expert witness. So it doesn't conclusively establish anything, but the the big deal on an expert witness is they get to, to testify actually to ultimate issues most, most of the time. There's case law in DUI cases where Um, the police officer can't say, yeah, I arrested him because he looked drunk to me. Um, so you have to to watch that and and the prosecution should be prepping their witnesses accordingly, not, not to say things like that to avoid mistrial. But has anyone had any expert testimony, uh, witness issues other than, uh, a criminalist on a DUI case? that seems to be generally what we get most of the time. For expert witnesses, I mean, uh, I take cases where I wanted an expert witness, but.
2: right, <laughs> we get, um, Daubert motions on HGN sometimes. Um, so, but that's one where I, if it, it's been a little while, but my recollection is it passed the Fry test. So there's a good argument that if it passed the Fry test, it passes the Dalbert test. Um, I have a written ruling on it if anybody ever wants a copy, but um, that, that is one that we get down here on um, on HGN, but that's the only other Daubert motion, or the only Daubert motion I'll say that I've gotten. Like you said, we don't typically get a Daubert objection to our criminalists in DUI cases.
3: I guess as we get more marijuana DUI cases, and that's less of a settled science, we could start to get Daubert motions on drug recognition experts. I just haven't seen one yet. Um I uh my DUI case is currently take forever than plead. Um oh you Judge Hooverman she has a retrograde one. Um that, I, is it that the the witness isn't qualified to say that, or is it the the science is just junk science?
0: Yeah, he's, right. saying, he's saying that the science, the motion in Lemony does not allow them to present retrograde evidence without having a full history of the defendants, you know, what time they drank, what time they ate, if they had. And I'm like, that's, I mean, we haven't, I haven't heard it because it's in the motion right now. Um, but I I kind of had the same the same criteria that if it's if it's peer review science then there's just no basis for them not to accept it.
3: Well, yeah, I mean that's you would definitely have to have a witness an expert witness to testify about retrograde. the the the, the arresting officer couldn't do it, um, even if he stayed the holiday and. Express last night, you still couldn't do it. So, <laughs> so they don't run those commercials as much anymore. Whereas, no, I'm not a doctor, but I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express. So um, go ahead, go ahead. I'm happy to perform this cardiothoracic bypass on you. Um,
0: well, that's like me, you know, I feel like I can give medical advice because I'm a, I have watched every single episode of Grey's Anatomy. So
3: So this one uh, is a unfortunately used as maybe a gross example, but uh, this is based on a, an Arizona uh, appellate case from last year uh, in a case that had lots and lots of issues. This wasn't the only issue, but an, an evidence technician for a local police department testified that a hatchet found at the crime scene had a chemical smell and what appeared to be blood and human tissue on the hatchet. Um, the technician was not qualified as an expert witness. And the other side basically objected, they look, this guy's not a pathologist. He, he's not allowed to, to testify about, you know, what blood and human tissue is. Um, and they said, well, we're not offering it as a the prosecution, we're not offering it as an expert opinion is just his lay opinion, he doesn't he doesn't have to be qualified as an expert witness to testify about uh, somebody that in, in his opinion appeared to be blood and human tissue on a hatchet. Um, what do people think? Do you think that that evidence should come in? Or that you would need if you want to offer evidence that it is human tissue on a hatchet, then you need to have someone from the medical community um, testify to that.
0: This is Monica Lindstrom. I'll go ahead and speak up. I would say that, um, it could be a lay opinion because I think adults know what a chemical smell is and they know what blood is, but I would have to look at the 403, is it prejudicial? Because if you have a crime scene tech, tech or an evidence tech saying that, but they're not qualified as an expert, it might be a little prejudicial. The jury might give more weight to their testimony just due to their position. So I guess I would look at those two things.
3: And I think that's the perfect analysis because something can be relevant and still unfairly prejudicial. Um color photographs of a murder scene might be relevant, but they also might be unfairly prejudicial. So as a defense attorney, you might say, hey, we can have, we're not saying you can have photographs of the murder scene. We just want them to be black and white photos. Um, we don't want them to be color photos. So there's I think that's a perfect analysis. Does, does anyone else want to chime in?
1: There is a comment uh, where someone says he could say it had a chemical smell, but the rest he'd have to be qualified.
3: Okay, on the theory that anybody knows what a chemical smell looks like. I think you can make an argument that maybe almost anybody knows what blood looks like. Human tissue is a little different. I not um, I'm fairly certain I've never seen human tissue. On, a, on an axe. Um, but the Court of Appeals basically said this was okay. They said the testimony from the police evidence technician who was also a crime scene processor uh, about the look and smell of a hatchet lying on the victim's torso uh, was admissible as a lay opinion in the guilt phase. So this the defendant hasn't been found guilty in the guilt phase of a capital murder trial. The testimony was based on his perception of a hatchet at the crime scene. He didn't need not he didn't need to identify the smell and the technician did not definitively state that the substance on the hatchet was human tissue. I I think I would have been screaming as a defense attorney in, in this case, saying, Well, that that that's unbelievably, you know, he's like, Well, yeah, there's a human there's human tissue found on the hatchet. You know, we don't know if the I, I don't remember if the how the hatchet was identified was linked back to the defendant. His fingerprints are on the hatchet, you know, and you know, for all we knew, he got you know, he used it to clean an animal after he was hunting. Um, I, I think I would have been right well, know I would have been objecting to the defense attorney, but the uh, Arizona Appellate Court thought this was okay that he could give his lay opinion as to uh. Human
1: tissue on a hatchet. Well, Judge, how about a, a, a scenario a little closer to home for us, where okay. a, ma- a maintenance person goes through an apartment, and on the kitchen table he sees a bong, or he's familiar with the smell of, of marijuana or um, meth. I well, I can do
3: I. I've allowed maintenance people to testify about the smell of marijuana before. Um, I don't know if I've done it since recreational marijuana became legal, Um, but um, I've allowed that. um, uh, What do other people think? Do you think that, I mean, even if uh, marijuana has a very distinctive smell as many people who have been to a, a concert have have smelled that smelling and and perhaps you remember what it smells like uh, whether you've used marijuana or, or not in your life now you could say you have and it's lawful probably um but uh what do other people think you think you would allow a lay opinion as to what marijuana smells like in a civil case I,
2: I think you certainly could I think it, it's I... I mean, at least in this day and age, it's kind of equivalent to an odor of al- an odor of intoxicants on a person and somebody appearing drunk. I think people are interacting with people who have used and, and smoked marijuana on a regular basis. And I, I think that at this point um, could be a fair lay opinion. Anybody else? Matt, we'll move on to hearsay.
0: Oh, I with, with the marijuana, I agree. Um, I normally ask them how would they know that it was marijuana, just to get an idea of where they're getting. But like you said, nowadays, you know, it, it's like we were surrounded by it so much that it's not something that uncommon. I did have someone once tell me that they could smell meth and. I did try to, you know, I asked, how would you know what it's messed about? Like, oh, because I was a user. So, um, like, I wouldn't be able to recognize him if I had no idea. So, I guess with was that kind of understanding.
2: All right. And, so, we, oh, go and, ahead, and, Judge Williams.
3: And, no, Judge Hoover was right. You still have to lay a foundation. For the person in some way you have to know how the person knows what marijuana smells like or how the person can you know whether it's the smell of gasoline or you know or whatever how, how do you know what that smells like i didn't mean to cut you off go ahead
2: no you're fine uh no i i agree and, and i think that the example that judge huberman used with the meth, if you have somebody who's going to testify that they were a meth user and they're familiar with what meth smells like either in its raw or smoked form, then I, I would think that that would be evidence that would tend to make a facted issue more or less likely. So I, I think that that would be admissible. Um, getting to hearsay. So hearsay is something that we definitely get a lot of objections uh, for in in our courts and our trials and i think probably everybody here has a pretty good idea of what hearsay is but it's it's an out of court statement that's offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted in the statement so it's an out of court statement offered for its truth um and it is generally not admissible um although there are a number of times where statements are either not hearsay or there are 30 different approximately 30 different hearsay exceptions so just because something is an out of court statement offered for its truth does not necessarily mean that it will be excluded and I think that's kind of the point that we're trying to drive home here because we're not going to be able to go into an in-depth analysis of every single non-hearsay and hearsay exception that there is I, I did put them in the PowerPoint for you but Almost more just to show you the the depth and and breadth of them. Um, it's a lot to consider and and something that you want to take the time to look at and familiarize yourself with because I think so often you get that oh objection hearsay sustained you know because it is an out of court statement offered for its truth but there are a lot of times that those statements will come in and and that is what we want to make sure that everybody is is thinking about and knowing to refer back to the rules here um, you have your non-hearsay statements the declarant witnesses prior statement or an opposing party statement um, but there are a lot of qualifiers there um, the declarant witness prior statement it has to be inconsistent with the testimony um, or consistent with the declarant's testimony and offered to rebut the um, recent fabrication of, of the testimony, or to rehabilitate credibility after the declarant is attacked on other grounds, or for identification purposes. So, um, that ID one, that's definitely one that I've seen come in in cases. And then there are a number of grounds under subsection two where uh, I, 801d2, I should say where the opposing party statement may not be hearsay so you want to take your time to familiarize yourself with these non-hearsay rules and then also the the hearsay exceptions that are detailed um, in the next slide because there are even more of those Um, present sense impressions and excited utterances those are are things that often um will either be admitted or tried to be admitted at trial in criminal cases, maybe through 911 calls or statements made to the police, and there are surrounding circumstances that you're going to have to evaluate and determine whether it is truly a present sense impression or truly an excited utterance um and then there are also the possibility of of confrontation clause issues which we're not covering this year but it is in last year's materials if you're very interested in in the confrontation argument as well so i think we're going to go in a little bit more into public records and some other of the hearsay exceptions but there's a lot there and, and certainly things you should take a look at
3: under public record and uh there's a, a a great Monty Python clip on dying declarations. If you ever if you ever need to uh, uh, have an example of a dying declaration uh, hearsay ex- exception, there's one I will uh, highlight just real briefly. Statement made for medical diagnosis or treatment is a hearsay objection, and that's one that we could see. Uh, an, an easy example of that is um, someone is a domestic violence victim. And the police respond and she says, I fell. Um, She tells her friends, I fell. Um, But when she goes in to see the doctor, she says, my husband punched me. Um, Because when she's going to see the doctor, she doesn't want to lie because she wants to get treatment for what her injuries actually are. Um, So that's an example of a statement that would be made for medical diagnosis of treatment that we could see come into evidence. Um, And even if she's not there at the trial, uh, for whatever reason, uh, that medical record could could come into evidence as an exception to hearsay. Um, I'm sorry that I didn't give that example earlier when we were planning. Um, I I just thought of this, I just thought of that now. Um, Business records is an exception that we get um, requested all the time, whether we whether we see it formally or informally. And uh, a business record exception here say has this four-part analysis. The record was made um, at or near the time of the event. It was made as some kind of normal, regularly conducted uh, business activity. There's someone who works for the company there that can say, yes, this is authentic. And the other side doesn't show that it lacks uh, trustworthiness for, for whatever reason and how it was prepared. The example that we see of this at least twice a week, if you're uh, for justice court judges, is a tenant ledger um, from the apartment complex in a non-payment of rent case, the landlord attorneys required to provide a copy of the tenant ledger. Um, and before all the, these records were electronic, um, you would have someone write in, you know, the, the amount that was paid and they would initial next it or whatever and maybe that person only worked at the front office for you know a few months or traded off and went to a different job different apartment complex the next person comes in um you know makes entries in a ledger then they go someplace else and by the time you get to trial if you want to introduce a year's worth of of a ledger Maybe you have six different people that made entries into it. You don't have to find those six different people um, and present them in as witnesses and say, yes, that's my initial for June. Um, One person at the end, uh, the records custodian can testify. Yes, I still work there. Yes, I've made the last two entries in the record. Um, I honestly don't know who some of these people are that made the earlier entries, but I can tell that this was made as part of our business practice and that um, it appears to be genuine. And I know that because it's kept in this record system. If you have that, then that business record comes in. It doesn't matter that it's the ledgers and out of court statement. Um, that document comes in as uh, an exception to hearsay under business record exception. Public records are, are the next side, and, and they're similar. Um, all public records are also going to be business records, but all business records are not public records. Uh, uh, a, bis- a, a public record is something that a government official has a duty imposed by law to create and report. So that's, that's what generates a public record. It, it sets out, um, the rule set out, if if an office activity, it's observed while there's some kind of legal duty to report it. Um, now, this is where police reports um, they try to bring them in as a public record. You can't bring in a public re- a police report as a public record uh, in a criminal case and just, you know, hang the report to the judge and say, there, read it. Um, you can see why uh, the person is guilty. It, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Um, so the public record exception uh, doesn't automatically apply to police report. It's more like something like a report by an Arizona gaming agency or maybe something from the National Traffic, uh, Traffic Safety Board report. Um, I think and I'll ask my co-presenter because I forgot. There's another thing I forgot to ask her earlier uh, before we were presenting. I think uh, motor, motor vehicle division records come in as, as a public record um I know there's something sometimes people want them authenticated and that's a, a separate issue but I don't think you need a witness from motor vehicles to testify about a motor vehicle division record necessarily um they can they can come in what what, what is your practice on motor vehicle division record
2: yeah I agree with you and I believe it's 902 subsection 4 and 10 that talks about the the self-certified self-authenticating aspect of some public records and and I I agree that motor vehicle records would be um, admissible as public records and can be certified self-authenticating documents under rule 902 as well if they contain the correct um, certification
3: Uh, Authentication is different from hearsay. Something can be genuine um, and still hearsay or something can be fake and otherwise admissible as hearsay. So this is something that how do I know this is this is what it really is. And and uh, we just heard about self-authenticating documents, like a government record. If it's signed and certified, it comes in. Uh, This is where you get uh, the self-representative against saying, but it's notarized. I, you know, it it can't be here say it's notarized. That that's a separate analysis. That a notary is like forgery police. That means the person just really signed it. It it doesn't mean that it's true. Um it just means the person really signed it. Now sometimes it's a sworn statement where they're swearing before a notary that this is true and correct, um, under penalty of perjury or whatever. Um, that makes it a sworn statement. It still doesn't get it past the hearsay objection. Um, if there's some kind of hearsay objection that otherwise applies to it, uh, does anyone have any questions about public record um, or or any kind of document like that? I had a person in a trial earlier this week, self-represented litigant. He printed out some stuff from the Weather Channel, because he wanted to show that a storm happened that day. Um, And he thought that that was the way to establish that a storm happened that day. And I just kind of looked at the other side and I said, do you have any objection reconsidering this? And I'm like, no. Yeah, it's not not worth fighting about. But if you want evidence that a storm happened, maybe printing off something from the internet is maybe not the best way to establish that. but the other side didn't object, so I admitted it. Um, he was alleging that um, the insurance company denied his roof repair uh, improperly and that the construction company lied and said that it really wasn't damage from a storm. It was damaged due to improper maintenance on his roof. So that, that's what the case was about. But the, the other side didn't really dispute that there was there was a thunderstorm you know, on that day. So um, I let that in, even though it was maybe not admissible under any theory
2: of
3: of evidence. Uh, Maybe it was
2: inherently reliable.
3: Yeah, because it was from the Weather Channel.
2: Right. Uh,
3: (laughs) um, If someone is objecting that it's only a copy uh, hopefully an attorney's not doing that. If, if if they are, maybe they're they're being a, a little bit of a of a jerk. Um, but if if the original is admissible, then the copy works too. Um, it, unless for some reason the the original document had some kind of independent significance, like maybe a, a challenge to a will. You need the original will, you know, or something like that. We don't hear those cases limited jurisdiction court, but th- there could be something where an original document had some kind of special significance. But 99.9% of the time, if the original is going to be admitted, then a copy is going to work as well. Um, the next thing was uh, the next topic's an add on. Uh, uh, I think Charles requested we cover this. And I had to get into this a little bit because it's different. Um, Than what um, I remember the privilege being. Like, I I knew that Arizona had this setup, but the first thing you you think of is when spousal privileges. I I think back to what it was when I was in law school, or what maybe you still see in movies or, or something like that. Uh, when I was in law school, the rule was that spouse can't be compelled to testify against their spouse, and that's that's kind of what the common law rule was, that you can't be forced to testify against your spouse. If you want to testify against your spouse, that's fair game, but you can't be compelled to testify against your spouse. That was the rule for a long, long time. That's changed uh, drastically uh, by statute and by other things in Arizona. The general rule there is in, in at bullet A, a spouse uh, cannot testify for or against their spouse without their spouse's consent. So maybe you want to testify against your spouse. They don't want you to, so you don't get to testify against your spouse. Um, there are some really important exceptions to that, and, and we'll get to those in a second. But that that strikes me as, well, why do why do I have, you know, veto power over whether or not my wife testifies against me? Why does she have veto power over whether or not I testify against her. That seems odd, you know, in, in, in a case that doesn't have anything to do um, where we're adverse to each other. But um, the, the big exception uh, if it doesn't apply the crimes against the family, including the other spouse. So obviously we never have a domestic violence conviction uh, for one spouse against another. If the defendant could always say, well, I object. She can't testify against me. That, that wouldn't be a workable system. So obviously uh, a, a victim can testify against the spouse. Um, if, if you have a situation where it's going uh, um, uh, to pay child support, uh, neglect, something like that uh, involving minor, minor children. The one spouse can testify against the other spouse. Either spouse can be examined as a witness for or against the other in a prosecution for certain serious felonies, including uh, homicide, aggravated assault, sexual assault, dangerous crimes against children, arson, armed robbery, burglary, um, sexual conduct with a minor, uh, sex trafficking, uh, bigamy or adulteries on the list um, As well, uh, so you, you, you don't get to rob a bank with your spouse and then keep each other from testifying against each other. Um, and then this is interesting wording. Um, I'd forgotten about this until I was preparing for this uh, presentation. Number three, for sexual consult for sexual assault committed by the husband if either of the following attorneys, it it doesn't say sexual assault committed by either spouse, it's just sexual assault committed by the husband uh, if either of the following occurs. Before testifying, spouse makes a voluntary uh, police statement or report, or the other spouse wants to testify. Um, Then that comes sailing in as testimony as well. There's a, a municipal case there, uh, the fourth bullet, that's when a, a defendant come, commits a crime against his or her spouse and is charged for that crime. The crime exceptions, the anti-marital fact uh, privilege allows the spouse witness to testify regarding not only that charge, but also any other charges arising from the same event. Um, so uh, this, yeah charles is right he just put it in the comment section keep this print this slide out maybe keep it handy um when you're doing a, a domestic violence trial um, and and go from there because it, it it gives a very very good checklist as to how to apply the statute and and when it applies I haven't had a situation where someone has raised spousal privilege um, I have lots of situations where uh, the alleged victim will cooperate with prosecution. That's a, a separate problem. But uh, I'll just throw it out there. Has anyone had a spousal privilege question?
2: I have not.
1: Anyone I, I, else? Yeah, I, you I, have? I, yeah, doing domestic violence um, trials, that, and this would come up and it's pretty tricky. So that's why I suggest you you keep the slide. And we're actually a couple minutes over. And so if we have any last questions. All right. And and as I said at the beginning, I was really looking forward to this. And it lived up to its billing. What a terrific job by Judges McDonald and Williams. Let's give them a hand. Your COGET certificate is at the end of the packet. And... uh, all things willing, this thing should be loaded as a podcast and as a webinar. If you want to go back and watch or listen to it again, I do recommend that. So have a great day, everybody.
2: Thanks, everybody.
3: Thank you. Thank you for attending. Thank you.